0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Anne-Marie Slaughter, the Dean of the Woodrow-Wilson School. I have the pleasure and the honor of introducing Secretary James Baker this evening. I actually thought I'd begin by letting him introduce himself, which is to say I'd like to read the following excerpt uh, from his wonderful memoirs. He says, I never intended to become involved in politics let alone international politics. Law was the tradition in my family. From my great-grandfather to my grandfather, to my dad, to two of my four grown sons, the Bakers have been lawyers, public-spirited attorneys who helped shape the foundations of commerce, business, and education as the frontier territory of Texas became the nation's second-largest state in the 19th century. My family has been involved in civic and public service. My great-grandfather was a state judge in the 1860s, and my grandfather, Captain Baker, played a critical role in the founding of Rice University in Houston and the establishment and growth of many of Houston's premier civic organizations. But politics was something altogether different. Captain Baker's advice to those who wanted to be good lawyers was work hard, study and keep out of politics and for the first 40 years of my life that's exactly what I did but when Mary Stewart became ill and died George Bush reached out to me to help with his senatorial campaign and from then on I was hooked for the next two decades politics and public policy were my passion and by the time I came became Secretary of State I had seen American politics from almost every angle and learned the art Of political strategy from the ground up. I could stop right there, but I have to just go on to describe those next 20 years. He certainly made up for lost time, but I have to start beginning Princeton. uh, He was the class of 1952. He was not a Woodrow Wilson School major, but that's the only flaw in a very distinguished resume. He went to the Marines for two years. He then did practice law for almost 20 years in Houston. He then he led the presidential campaigns for Presidents Ford, Reagan, and Bush. 1975, he served as Undersecretary of Commerce for President Ford. From 1981 to 1985, he was the White House Chief of Staff. From 1985 to 1988, he was the Secretary of the Treasury and simultaneously Chair of the Economic Policy Council. And from 1989 to 1992, he was Secretary of State Uh, under the first President Bush. He was Secretary of State at an absolutely extraordinary time. Uh, Obviously, when the wall came down, and equally importantly, as Germany was reunified, uh, as Europe uh, became again whole and free, And as the administration emphasized the importance of international institutions in what the first President Bush called a new world order. After stepping down as Secretary of State, uh, he wrote his memoirs, which I highly uh, recommend, uh, and went back uh, to the practice of law, this time at Baker and Bott's. uh, And he is, of course, chairman. Of the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice whom we regard as a distinguished competitor. He's also continued his work in foreign policy. Secretary Kofi Annan asked him to be the special envoy to the Western Sahara and he worked for seven years uh, trying to bring a political solution uh, to that conflict. He is currently uh, the Special Envoy for President Bush on the issue of Iraqi debt, and most recently the co-chair of a new commission uh, looking at steps to take uh, in the war in Iraq. He has had a career to die for. He is going to speak to us today about his views uh, on the world. He will then uh, take questions uh, and will give you a chance to uh, join the conversation. Please join me in welcoming Secretary James Baker.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you, Anne Marie, for that very generous introduction. To uh, elaborate a little bit on the uh, story about not intending to go into politics and public service, let me uh, tell you that uh, right after my wife died at the age of 38 uh, from breast cancer, leaving me with four small sons, my tennis doubles partner at the time was this fellow named George Bush, and he came to me and he said, you know, bake, he said, you need to take your mind off your grief, so how about helping me run for the Senate? In those days, Texas was a solidly Democratic state. We had not elected a Republican statewide since Reconstruction, and I was a Democrat. The division line in those days was between conservative Democrats and liberal Democrats, but nevertheless, I was a Democrat. There were practically no Republicans in Texas in those days, and so I looked at George Bush and I said, well, George, (laughs) that's a great idea except for two things. Number one because of my grandfather's admonition, I don't know anything about politics. And number two, I'm a Democrat. He said, well, we can take care of that latter problem. Uh, and we did. And when I'm talking to a Republican audience, I say that I got religion. And when I'm talking to a mixed audience, I say I converted. And uh, and, I, and I became a Republican. And one thing led to another. And I found myself... Um, we ran a good race, we lost, but I got a little bit interested in politics. found myself up in Washington as the Deputy Secretary of Commerce for President Ford. I'd only been there six months when, when the second tragedy struck that had impact, that impacted my career. President Ford's delegate hunter in his race for the Republican nomination against a guy named Governor Ronald Reagan out here in California was killed in an automobile accident. President Ford said, I'd like you to go over and be my delegate hunter. Go to the campaign, and I did. One thing led to another. We barely won the nomination by only, I think, 30 delegate votes out of some 3,500 that were cast. It was the last really contested uh, political convention of either uh, political party in this country. We barely won. After the convention, uh, President Ford asked me to be his uh, national campaign chairman against the president against Governor Jimmy Carter. And we started out about 26 or 27 points behind, and on election day, we were dead even. We lost by 10,000 votes out of 81 million votes that were cast nationwide. a Very, very close election. you turn 10,000 votes around in Ohio and Hawaii, and Ford would have been elected, Carter would never have been president. And I never will forget forget the morning after that election, around 3.30 in the morning, thinking to myself, boy, is this bizarre. Seven years ago, you were a Democratic lawyer in Houston, Texas, and now you have run a presidential campaign for an incumbent Republican president in what is clearly going to be the closest presidential election of your lifetime. As it turned out, that was not the case, given... (laughs) given what happened in in 2000. But anyway, by then, my interest in politics had been, I'd gotten a little bit bitten by the bug. I'd practiced law for 16 or 18 years. I thought, I'm going to try my hand at politics. And I went back to Texas, and I filed a run for statewide office uh, as a Republican. Again, we hadn't elected a Republican statewide since Reconstruction. I went back there. And I never will forget one hot summer day uh, somewhere up in the panhandle of Texas, Lubbock, or something like that. I remember seeing a group of people at a shopping center, and I went over to give them some campaign literature. I see this guy. I stick out my hand to introduce myself to him. Now, bear in mind, as President Ford's national campaign chairman, I've gotten a lot of FaceTime on television. I stick out my hand to introduce myself to this guy, and before I can say a word, he looks at me and he says, say. He said, anybody ever tell you you look like Jim Baker? <laughs> and I looked back at him, and I said, yes, sir, off him. He never batted an eyelash. He looked right back at me. He said, doesn't it piss you off? <laughs> well, that was, the, that was the first clue I had that I might not win that, that race, and I didn't. I'm really glad to be back here at my alma mater. Uh, early in my life, ladies and gentlemen, tradition played an important role in my decision to come here because my father had uh, been here as a member of the class of nineteen fifteen uh, over time then it was my good fortune to uh, make it uh, to the post of Secretary of State to be the seventh Princetonian to ever uh, get to that uh, to, to that uh, cabinet position uh, and Today, at the end of my career that tradition that is so important here helps me understand why it takes a hundred Princeton alumni to change a light bulb that's one to screw it in and ninety-nine others to complain about how much better the old days were (laughs) but I've been asked to speak to you as Anne Marie suggested about the global challenges that that are going to test American foreign policy during the coming years and I will do so beginning with a simple premise and that is that I think there are two historic phenomena shaping the international landscape that confronts our country in the 21st century. And the first of these is the uniquely preeminent place that America occupies today in world affairs. You have got to go back way way back in history, I think, to find a similar uh time when when just one country occupied such a preeminent place in global affairs. Uh, and I think that that uh was symbolized best where it began really by with the end of the Cold War, and the end of the Cold War in turn was symbolized by the fall of the Berlin Wall in, in 1989. The second phenomenon is the danger posed by terrorism, uh, and that threat is embodied as well in all of its horror by the fall of the World Trade Towers in 2001. These two phenomena establish what I have called, and what I think it's a reasonable To call the paradox of American power. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we are stronger today as a nation internationally and in the national security and foreign policy arena than we've ever been before, but in many ways our country is perhaps more vulnerable. First, let me say a word or two about this preeminence in world affairs. Since the demise of the Soviet Union, we have faced no global rival, economic, political, uh, or even in uh, in the uh, competition for ideas, <clears throat> ideological. Certainly no country begins to match our ability to project force effectively and responsibly across oceans and continents. We maintain leadership in a broad range of regional alliances and international institutions. You take organizations like NATO, you take our partnerships, security partnerships with Japan and South Korea. All of these give the United States a great deal of reach and flexibility in its strategic options. Moreover, we play very influential roles in institutions such as the UN Security Council, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund. We are furthermore an economic giant. Our gross domestic product represents now a total of one quarter of uh, total world output We consistently outperform major competitors in Western Europe and Japan, and we remain, I think, at least, the standard-bearer of contemporary capitalism. And lastly, communism's collapse left us really without a global rival in the struggle over ideas. In just three decades, the number of democracies in the world jumped from 40 to more than 110. There has been some backsliding in recent years, particularly on economic liberalization in South America, but I still think it's fair to say, and I would argue, that the long-term trend towards market-oriented economics is also clear. Some observers have described the current global system as a unipolar system, that is one centered on the United States of America. Eventually, eventually, Our dominance is going to face some serious rivals, particularly from the economic engines that are ginning up in China and in India. But today, it is really true that no country represents a short to medium term challenge. Now, let me not exaggerate the idea of a unipolar world, uh, because I think we are far from the empire, the term that some people have used to describe us. Our power is not limitless nor is the willingness of the American public to support the idea of our country as the world's policeman. But we do enjoy a preeminence without precedent in modern history. Now, the second phenomenon that I mentioned that's shaping the international landscape, the international terrorist threat against us and against our allies and, indeed, against our values, is a threat that is magnified exponentially by weapons of mass destruction. Despite the immense strength of the United States today, we are vulnerable, as was tragically driven home to us by the terrible attacks of 9-11. And unfortunately, in a society such as ours, addressing that vulnerability is far from easy. We possess, after all, an open society, that remains a traditional home to immigrants from around the world, as we have seen with the demonstrations over the course of the past week or so. And let me just interject here to say that this is a big political problem for us right now, but I really believe we're going to solve it, and hopefully we're going to solve it in a way that continues to welcome uh, immigrants from other countries because that's been one of the sources of America's strength and America's growth. Anyway, we, we, represent, we, we, uh, we face a number of terrorist threats that are very real. We've been very fortunate, in my view, that we haven't been hit again since 2001. Uh, and perhaps nothing better represents this paradox of American power that I'm talking about than our engagement in Iraq, which, of course, is extraordinarily controversial. And the longer it continues, the more controversial it is. That involvement in Iraq represents the first of six global challenges that I want to briefly touch on tonight, because I think these six challenges <clears throat> will test our foreign policy in the coming years. Our initial victory uh, in the war in Iraq was, a, was really a, a, quite an impressive feat of arms, quite an impressive military. But the security situation there remains, at the very least, tenuous, and some would say far worse. Uh, we have not—we we have obviously misjudged the difficulty of uh, winning the peace as opposed to winning the war. Both religious and ethnic conflict represent a threat to the country's future. But there are some grounds—some grounds for optimism, I think because we do see reconstruction occurring, though both its pace and its scope are hampered by continuing violence. We see a democratic government struggling to form itself, though far more slowly than many would have hoped. We see revamped Iraqi security forces, again, very slowly, being turned into a force capable of assuming responsibility for their nations own security. But having said all of that, we should not underestimate the difficulties that lie ahead. And let me be very blunt about that. Civil war, I think, remains a possibility, not a probability in my opinion, but a distinct possibility. Even under the best of possible outcomes, which I think would be a multi-ethnic government that manages to bring a modicum of peace to that country, a government that is at peace with its neighbors and that does not brutalize its own citizens as the former government government of Iraq did, even under that best possible outcome, we ought not to think we're going to see a flowering of Jeffersonian democracy along the banks of the Euphrates because that is simply not going to happen. As a result, I think we can foster no illusion about our role there. There is no doubt in my mind that a protracted American military presence uh, is unavoidable. A precipitous withdrawal would have catastrophic consequences both for Iraq and the region and for our credibility, whether it's political, diplomatic, or military around the world. The countries uh, that are bordering Iraq, many of them historic allies of the United States, do not want to see... Lebanized Iraq. They do not want us to precipitously pull out for fear of what that will mean to their their own country. Second challenge I want to mention is that challenge of combating international terrorism. Uh, You get terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda representing a deadly threat to all civilized nations, not just to the United States, because what happened in New York and Washington could just as easily happen in Paris or in Moscow or in Cairo or in New Delhi or, for that matter, in Beijing, and we've seen something like that in Madrid. I think military action has got to remain an option open to the United States. Countries that harbor al-Qaeda should be under no misperception that we will not look to them to correct that situation. I think we need to do a better job of fortifying our public diplomacy. The United States and our allies have done some really good work in the war on terror in the area of tracing terrorists and particularly in, the, in cooperating to crimp their financial capabilities. But we might got to do a lot better job explaining our policies to people in the Middle East and South Asia if we're going to prevent the war on international terror from escalating into a conflict between cultures. Terrorism today is centered in the Muslim world, but we must always distinguish by both word and deed between radical Islamists and the majority of Muslims who wish us absolutely no harm. Because I think a decades-long battle for the hearts and minds of the Islamic world has just begun, and we will lose it if we are perceived, rightly or wrongly, as being simply anti muslim The third challenge I want to mention, which is closely linked to the threat of terrorism, is stemming the spread of weapons of mass destruction, an extraordinarily difficult challenge. Indeed, the nightmare scenario for our policymakers in Washington today is a terrorist group detonating a nuclear or biological device in an American city. There, of course, is also the risk of rogue states acquiring weapons of mass destruction and the missile systems necessary to deliver them. So we must focus on the loose nukes problem, what we call the loose nukes problem, the diversion of nuclear materials and or know-how from nuclear powers such as Russia or Pakistan, even if terrorists cannot develop weapons of mass destruction, they do remain capable of stealing or buying dangerous technologies and materials. More must be done to prevent countries like Iran and North Korea from developing weapons of their own. I happen to think that incentives could play a large part in this, just as they did with Libya, which gave up its weapons of mass destruction program, in large part because of their desire to join the civilized world and and their desire to... Have the incentives that we presented to them, but we really do need to avoid the temptation of appeasement. Incentives is one thing; appeasement is quite something else. We've got to we've got to be smart in the way we go about this. We've got to utilize the right mix of carrots and sticks. We do have a track record, and uh, I think that is something that we can look to and benefit from and experience and dealing with difficult diplomatic and political situations. The administration today is adopting a political and diplomatic approach to both of these very difficult issues, and that's, in my view, exactly what they ought to do. The fourth challenge is fostering global economic growth. I say that because globalization is here to stay. Uh, Fostering global uh, economic growth is best done through liberalized trade and investment because we all know that liberalized trade and investment increase economic growth, they generate employment, and they raise incomes. And these benefits <clears throat> these benefits are not limited to the advanced economies. Indeed, the potential rewards of globalization are greatest for the very poor around the world. So globally, we need to press for further trade liberalization through the World Trade Organization, I hate to tell you I'm a little pessimistic about the chances of that today, but that's what we need to be doing. Regionally, we should build on the success of the North American Free Trade Agreement and move rapidly towards a hemispheric free trade zone comprising North and South America. And, of course, domestically, we must strive to bolster economic performance here at home. The fifth challenge is protecting our environment. I'm not going to debate the science of global warming in uh, any questions I get on global warming i'm going to I'm going to vector to somebody else in the audience because I don't understand the science of global warming, but I am a hunter and I'm a fisherman who believes that mankind should responsibly shepherd its resources. I think it is critical that we do everything we can particularly in our own country of course to to uh, continue to to have clean water and clean air to the extent that we can. We need to do we need to do something about global warming, but I was there when the Kyoto Treaty was negotiated. It was negotiated on on our watch. We asked for a few what we thought were modest uh, additions to the treaty like including China and India, and we were turned down and just basically uh, we It was rejected out of hand by some of our European allies, so the United States did not sign the Kyoto treaty until after we lost the election. Then the United States signed the Kyoto treaty a treaty that I am convinced, ladies and gentlemen, is a very bad treaty for the United States from an economic standpoint. It went up to the hill and it was voted down ninety five to nothing in the Senate a very Close vote of course, 95 to nothing. But anyway, I'm not a fan, as you can tell, of the Kyoto Treaty. But it is important that we look at this problem of global warming, figure out what needs to be done about it, figure out how we can establish a gradual and orderly transition to cleaner energy sources. But hasty efforts to improve the air like Kyoto, I think, Would cause economic problems that would jeopardize global stability. They would certainly cause economic problems in this country. And interestingly enough, some of our European friends are not living up to the commitments that they took on when they signed the Kyoto (coughs) Treaty. I think we have time for an orderly transition to cleaner and, uh, and cleaner burning fuels. But the sixth and last challenge I want to mention is building strong bilateral relationships. We have we've gone through a rough spot uh, in the last few years in terms of our most important bilateral relationships with other countries around the world. Partnerships uh, that are involved in our bilateral relationships will be critical in meeting any of the other challenges I've mentioned today. I was talking to President Tillman on the way over here about how much easier it is to accomplish things diplomatically and politically when you're joined by other countries than than if you have to do it on your own. On the other hand, there are times when, sometimes when you have to do it on your own. But there, there are a number of these historic alliances that have been strained by our intervention in Iraq. There remains vast scope, I think, for cooperation on issues such as combating terrorism and stemming proliferation. Europeans, for instance, have a vital role to play in dealing with Iran's nuclear program, and they're trying right alongside us, or I should say we alongside them. South Korea and Japan are similarly critical in any approach to North Korea's nuclear program. We ought to also intensify our efforts on building closer relationships to the South, particularly with Mexico and Brazil, but including the smaller countries of Central and South America. For decades, Latin America has complained that Washington neglects them unless problems arise, and I'm sad to say that I think there's probably some truth to that complaint. To its credit, the current administration has done much to expand our policy dialogue with Mexico, but a lot more work is going to be needed there in the years ahead. Our relations with Russia and China, two of the most important bilateral relationships at the United States states has, are, da- are really dauntingly complex uh, in the global environment that we, uh, that we see today. While we share broad areas of common interest, from promoting global growth to fostering regional stability, there are many issues that divide us. Our task in the years ahead will be to capitalize on the common interests that we have and that can allow us to forge common policies with Russia and China. But just as important, we'll need to manage the differences that we have with these two countries, and there are differences. We'll need to manage those when and not if they arise. That need, I think, is particularly acute in the case of Beijing. There are some in both countries, both the United States and China, who predict today inevitable conflict as China's ambitions clash with American preeminence. We should reject such notions because they have the potential of becoming self-fulfilling prophecies. And the last thing the world needs is another Cold War. But it's going to require some deft diplomacy and some visionary leadership on both sides of the Pacific if Sino-American cooperation in such vital areas as energy and liberalized trade and nonproliferation is to be sustained. We must also work to strengthen our ties with India, the administration is trying to do that. China's economic revolution has led many to neglect India's similar transformation. But New Delhi, like Beijing, is poised to assume a much larger role on the world stage. Many people have criticized the administration's recent nuclear deal with India as undermining international nonproliferation efforts. I have some questions about that myself. The truth of the matter is that India is and will remain a nuclear power, regardless of what we do. And our objective should be to engage the world's most populous democracy in ways that promote regional stability and that reduce the risk of a nuclear arms race in Asia. So, ladies and gentlemen, let me conclude by saying that to meet these global challenges, we have a variety of tools. At our disposal. Our task is to seek approaches that best advance our goals in each specific set of circumstances. Because in foreign policy, as Anne Marie Slaughter will tell you, one size does not fit all. Even if we live in a unipolar world, we can and should seek the advice and the cooperation of others. Global challenges require coordinated global responses. But there will be times, as I said earlier, when we will have to go it alone. We should always remember that the surest and best test of a great power is its ability to act unilaterally, if that is necessary, to protect vital national security interests. The current administration's doctrine of preventive war is controversial. However, preemptive Military action against shadowy stateless groups like al-Qaeda and countries that harbor them is not merely justifiable. Sometimes there is simply no alternative. We should not fear exercising our power when our national interests are at stake, nor should the world worry when we do. But no country is perfect. We are not perfect. But we do have a track record. The United States of America has a track record, ladies and gentlemen, from rebuilding Western Europe and East Asia after World War II to peacefully concluding the Cold War, a track record of exercising our power, generally in ways that benefit and advance the human condition. Indeed, I think that the United States rightly views itself as the chief engine of economic growth globally, and the historic champion of democratic values around the world. Let me say I am really optimistic as I stand here today at my alma mater so many years after my graduation. I am really optimistic that a better world is possible for our children and for our grandchildren. But that brighter future is going to require individual leadership. And this is where institutions, I think, like the Wilson School, play such a vital role. For 75 years, the school has trained generations of Americans to understand the importance and indeed the imperative of our engagement in the international arena. This task has never, in my opinion, been more urgent than it is today, as the United States confronts a world of both acute risk and unparalleled opportunity. Thank you all very, very much. I'd be delighted to respond to your I don't
0: know how long it took, but no, it's just not time. too long. The floor is open. They're in the back. Welcome back to Princeton. Well, the beauty,
1: <laughs> the beauty of our country is that you that anybody can say what they want. It, generally speaking, when generals make uh, comments that, to the effect that the Secretary of Defense ought to be fired, they wait until they're former generals, uh, which which may not uh, say a whole lot for our system. But I'm not going to comment on, on personalities. I... Um, I'm very close to a lot of people in this administration from the top on down, and it would not be appropriate for me to comment on personality. Uh, The the fact that the military, the uniformed military, are hesitant and reluctant to, to speak out when they're on active duty, I think is probably understandable. But I don't really have a view on that that i would uh that I would express here
2: oh. our politics.
1: Yeah, I think it's very regrettable that things are as ugly as they are today uh up in Washington and they're plenty ugly. Uh it didn't didn't used to be that way when I first went up in 1975, you could disagree agreeably with your adversary. A political adversary did not have to be a political enemy. Today it's a zero-sum game and it's extremely uh extremely unfortunate. What What's caused it? I really can't answer that except that when I was there and we were dealing with a Congress of the opposite body. I mean, we were Republican administrations dealing generally with Democratic Congress. Uh, And they had something called the Independent Council Law. And people soon learned that the best way to win in politics was to get your opponent indicted. And that law, all it required was a simple allegation. President Clinton extended that law, by the way, after it expired, and I know... I know he was sorry he extended, but but don't think you know. But he, I know he doesn't feel like a lone ranger because there were plenty plenty of times where Republicans were subject to that. We've gotten rid of that. There, the country is evenly, pretty evenly divided. That may be another reason for this. Uh, There has been a proliferation of media outlets with the internet and all of the cables and things that we didn't have back in those days. So the, the news cycle is measured now in terms of minutes, not in terms of days. Uh, and there's great competition, great competition for news up there. And and I think to some extent that competition leads sometimes to a, to a tendency to write first and check later. And all of that's not good. None of that is good. And we really need, you know, but it's been quite a while, if I might say it, since we had politics stopping at the water's edge. That hadn't been the case for quite some time. I mean, foreign policy should, it's a valid subject for security, and foreign policy is certainly a valid subject for the political debate in a democracy. What do I think about the fact that the, that the uh, uh, some of the media in those countries is not what we what we uh, know as free media? Is that what you're saying? Is government control media? How can we explain our policies given that situation? Well, we have now we have broadcasts that we can beam into countries that are that people do listen to and do watch. We have policymakers. Uh, quite often, going on some of these uh, stations that have been most critical of the United States, I think we need to keep doing that. That's the only way I know to uh, to uh, better explain our policies and to get our message out. But I think we're we're trying to do that. But as I as my remarks indicated, I think we need to do a better job of doing that.
0: Uh, there, in the pink shirt, oh, well, you all decide. <laughs> Can you, you slow down a little bit? Slow little down louder. and a little louder. <laughs> we don't hear you up here. It's a good question, but...
2: I'm <laughs> sorry. Former NSA director. You mean up. Bill Odom? Yeah, yeah. yeah. When Wh- he came, what did he say? When he came here late last year, he said our not, our obstruction, our non-proliferation policy regarding Iran, our policies there were not only futile and abortive because we kept the spread of technology, but they, they could even be reversed buy clout with the regime there. What do you think of these comments? Do you believe that... It's inevitable. I heard no. you
1: say that Bill Odom thinks our, uh, our anti-proliferation policy with Iran is wrong-headed. That's all I heard you say. Feudal. Yeah, essentially, oh. futile no. and abortive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we haven't, so far at least, we have not, uh, we have not succeeded in shutting down Iran's nuclear program. Uh, on the other hand, they are an NP. The argument they will make is they're an NPT signatory country and they have a right to use. Uh, they have the right to use nuclear power for peaceful means. The only trouble is nobody believes them. And I guarantee you Bill Odom doesn't agree. Doesn't believe them. I don't want to speak for him, but I'm sure he doesn't believe them because he ran NSA for many, many years, and he knows what they're thinking and saying. And they, you can't trust them just like you can't trust North Korea. So that would be my answer to, to your question. Um, one thing I will say that I... I guess I tend to agree with Bill on, is that a policy of unilateral sanctions is never very effective. We've had unilateral sanctions legislated against Iran for a long time. Those sanctions might be effective if they were multilateral. It's very difficult to see any, any real serious, seriously beneficial effect from unilateral sanctions. Of course, that's what we're all about right now in the Security Council. Britain, France, the United States, Germany—all uh, having referred Iran's nuclear activities to the UN Security Council—you're going to see, you're going to see a lot of debate in the Security Council in upcoming months about what to do. Uh,
2: thanks for being with us tonight. Um, I want to ask you: Where in these uh, six global challenges does promoting democracy come in? So, for example, specifically, if you could address uh, what's going on with Venezuela, especially last week. Uh, the incidents with the U.S. ambassador in Venezuela. Uh, I was wondering if you could touch upon the topic of democracy. Thanks.
1: Well, the promotion of democracy is a cornerstone of American foreign policy. That's one of the things that we that supports our our foreign policy. We formulate you, when you formulate and implement foreign policy, you do so from two different directions. One, on the, based on the principles and values that this country believes in. We're against genocide. We're for democracy, we, you know, things like that, and from the from the standpoint of national interest. Why, were, why did we not go into Rwanda? Why don't we have troops in Darfur? There, there are terrible things. Terrible things went on in Rwanda. Terrible things are going on in Darfur. But the American people are not going to be willing to support for very long uh, a military effort in a, in a place where we do not have substantial national interest. I will not argue with you that we don't have national a substantial national interest in Venezuela. I think we do, uh, and I think that the guy there is using uh you know it's, it's great fun to, to beat up on uncle whiskers, and that's what he's doing, and he's also doing uh, with his oil revenues a lot of what Fidel Castro used to do in uh in central and South america fomenting unrest and and opposition to American leadership and American policies. Uh, so, is is promotion of democracy one of our one of our basic um, principles in our foreign policy? You bet it is. I don't see that as a challenge. That's just one of the principles of our foreign policy. Uh, you could say that that Venezuela is a challenge. I think it is. What do we do about this guy? That's a challenge, but it doesn't rise to the stature or status. I don't think of the six I mentioned to.
0: Down Here in the front, you might want to turn so everybody can hear your
2: question. You talk about your, uh, your new role with this commission. Why you decided? Yeah. With it, why you decided to take it on with the administration? Yeah.
1: Yeah. The question is, why am I uh a the Republican chairman of something called the Iraq Study Group, which is a it is a bipartisan effort? To see if we can come up with some insights and advice for the Congress and the administration uh, in a forward-looking way, not hand-wringing about what happened in the past or mistakes in the past. Uh, why am I doing it? Uh, I'm doing it because, as someone that's, that that uh, that sits in a round office up there, who. Uh, who thinks that if we can come up with some uh, other advice and uh, some advice and insights that could be useful, he wants to know about it. I'm not sure whether we can or not, but we are bipartisan, uh, and we're we're going to strive in every way possible to uh, come up with a consensus report so that it is not a six to four vote or something like that, Uh, This is not a governmental commission. It's not created by the executive branch. It was not created by the the legislative branch. But it has been, it was done at the urging of members of Congress, bipartisan members of Congress, who said they wanted to to see a fresh eyes look at Iraq, and it was welcomed by the administration. And the administration said, "We we welcome this effort, and we will cooperate with it in terms of travel and access to people and documents. That's why I'm doing it. We, we we refuse to set a timeline on it. Uh, I think when you put a time out there, you just tie your hands. And we don't know what we. First of all, we don't know whether we can come up with anything productive or not. <laughs> Secondly, we we don't know if we can how long that would take. We were briefed by the National Intelligence Council by, the, by uh, John Negroponte's uh, deputy two days ago in Washington, and we've gotten off to a fine start. Everybody there is is serving on that commission in a genuine effort to try and do something that might help the country. If we can come up with advice and insight that is bipartisan and forward-looking, that would be good for the country. And uh, I'll tell you who's on it. On the Republican side, I'm the chairman, and there's Sandra Day O'Connor and Rudy Giuliani and uh, Bob Gates, who was CIA director under the first President Bush, and Senator Alan Simpson. On the Democratic side is Lee Hamilton as the Chairman, uh, Chuck Robb, Senator Chuck Robb, uh, Leon Panetta, who was Clinton's Chief of Staff, and Bill Perry, who was Clinton's (coughs) Defense Secretary, and Vernon Jordan. And nobody's on that commission. We're we're all volunteers, and we're doing it because it might be helpful for the country.
2: European powers, right. particularly France and Germany. There's right. a big debate over whether this is, uh, whether we've had trouble because we just have different political cultures, because of difference in power positions, or maybe because of specific policies of this administration. What, what do you think is the source of the trouble in that relationship, or in those relationships, and where do you are, think they're going in the next couple of years?
1: Well, you heard me say, I think we need, those relationships are important to America, they've been important to us historically, and we need to rebuild them to the extent that they're frayed. I like think a lot of things contributed. The fraying of those relationships, uh, beginning with our involvement in Iraq, where we had a different view than uh, than some of the European powers uh, did, uh, and um, that's what really I think got it started. It uh, it disintegrated a little bit from there. But in recent, in the last year or so, it's begun to, it's they've begun to rebuild themselves. You look at the Iraq debt mission that I did for the or the administration where I went around to capitals and got 80, got these countries to to agree to 80, to wipe right off 80% of the debt that uh, was owed to their countries by Iraq. I, I met with President Chirac, I met with Chancellor Schroeder, I met with all of the, with, with uh, Prime Minister Blair and all, we got 80% reduction across the board. You heard me say in my remarks that we're doing a good job in cooperating in the war on terror. Uh, we're, we're doing a lot to crimp financial capabilities of the terrorist groups around the world. So there's a lot of cooperation uh, going on, and, and I think we're in the process of rebuilding these alliances. Secretary Rice and the president himself have been active in doing it and going and visiting these uh, other countries, and I think it's on the we're on the move, and, and we're building it back. You asked me what caused it. What caused it was a difference of opinion on whether and how we should go about the business of Iraq. Reverend well, can I say one final thing? There, I, I should say this. I've done a lot with the United Nations, uh, and in the first Gulf War, we got a resolution authorizing the use of force to kick Iraq out of Kuwait, so that the we we had the we in effect had the international community against Iraq. Um, and I have spent this seven years working with the Security Council on the Western Sahara that Anmark. Emory mentioned. But I got to tell you I've never in my life seen a situation where a permanent five member country declared in advance that it was going to veto a resolution before the resolution was even tabled by two other permanent five member countries. I think we made a mistake going for a second resolution. The president went for a resolution, he got one 15 to nothing that said Saddam should do this and this and this and if he didn't that would be serious consequence. Then we went for a second resolution because Tony Blair our great our strong ally felt he needed it. we were trying to help him but we went for it without knowing we had the votes to get it and that was a mistake and that's where the big that's where the big contretemps started but France announced in advance that it would veto that resolution before it was even tabled by Britain and the United States. Now that's if I may say so, semi-outrageous in the history of the United Nations, at least in my experience. I just need to say that.
2: (laughs) Secretary Baker, uh, I wonder if you could tell us what conditions would
1: have to obtain before you would be willing to say that Iraq is in a state of civil war? Well, I don't think I could define that, but it would have to be a lot. It would have to be a lot worse than it is now. There are there's ethnic tension and strife now between Shiites and Sunnis. There's no doubt about that. But there's a lot of. Uh, we were just briefed, as I told you Dave, before. Yes, there's a lot of ordinary criminality. There's a lot of corruption uh, that's driving some of this stuff, and then you have the jihadists in there, all of whom are are uh, are uh, ecstatic about. Uh, about getting up there with the sixty virgins and blowing up a bunch of innocent people. So you got all of that. That's not civil war. And neither is the criminality civil. Some of the ethnic tension and violence, you might argue, well, this looks like a prelude to it. But I don't think I don't think we're there by a long shot. That's my own view. I'd also happen to believe we're not well positioned with a hundred and 40 to 150,000 Americans on the ground to referee a civil war, if a full-scale civil war were to break out, uh, then I think we would have to really rethink what we do and how we do it. But they're still meeting, trying to form this government. Sunnis and and Shia and Kurds, and that's not indicative of a civil war. Their leadership is not ordering uh, this carnage that you see. That's coming from below. Way in the back.
2: Thank you. Mr. Secretary, in, in your remarks, you uh, you stated that you had some questions about the proposed US nu- U.S.-India nuclear deal. I wonder if you would expand on those questions and tell us if you'd recommend any changes in the deal.
1: Well, I don't know enough about the deal to recommend changes. Uh, and one of the questions I had was that I've that I haven't actually seen a text. Uh, it may be classified, in fact. I haven't seen a text of the deal. But I was the last Cold War Secretary of State, and the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was uh, was a big piece of our of our successful policy back in those days. And I think this, you know, you could argue that this undermines the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. What, you, what, you, what we're doing is rewarding a country that wouldn't sign the NPT and developed a nuclear weapon. And now we're going to reward them. Now, it may make eminently good sense from the standpoint on, of getting on a good bilateral track with India. Uh, I don't know what it does with respect to our relationship with Pakistan, which has been a really important relationship in our in our successful military engagement in, in Afghanistan and in our war on terror. So those are the nature of the questions I have. I don't know how you'd rewrite it. I'm not that familiar with it. I think it's fine to reach out to India. I really do. I just wonder if there was not, might not have been a, a, a other areas we could reach out rather than, than the, this nuclear cooperation because of the questions I just mentioned. <laughs> uh, they
0: on the off.
2: Your decision during the first Gulf War not to invade Iraq. And was that is was that decision, in your opinion, a factor in this administration's decision to start the second Gulf War?
1: I can't answer the last part of your question as to whether our decision not to go to Baghdad and get Saddam had anything to do with this administration's decision to do so. Twelve years had elapsed and there'd been a lot of thumbing your nose at UN Security Council resolutions in the interim. But you want me to justify our decision not to go to Baghdad in 91, I would refer you to what's happening today.
0: Uh, there in the center. Yep.
1: That wasn't the only reason, by the way. They, that was not the only reason, but our military didn't want any part that time of occupying that big Arab country. Go read page uh, 438 of my memoir. <laughs> and, and, and also, we would promised the rest of the world we were not in it for that. We, were, we got a UN Security Council resolution authorizing the use of force. The only time the Security Council of the United Nations has ever done that, and we got that because we said, hey, we're going to kick Iraq out of Kuwait. This unprovoked aggression will not stand. And we're not in this to establish a base in Iraq or to get their oil or anything else. Also, we didn't want to see a Lebanization
2: of Iraq. Uh, Secretary, you mentioned before um, the um, effectiveness of having a free trade zone between North and South America. You also mentioned that uh, unilateral sanctions were quite ineffective. Uh, where do you think Cuba would fit into that um, free trade zone?
1: Where Do I think who would fit Cuba. into it?
2: Cuba? Well, the Cuba,
1: you know, I've had that question come at me over the past 20 years, so many times. I, I've lost track. Uh, and my wife is here. I should, should have introduced her a long time ago. My wife, Susan Baker's here, stand-up, Susan. I've been a politician long enough to know <laughs> I've, been a, I've, been a, I've been a politician long enough to know you ought to always introduce your wife before somebody else does. And and I introduce her because I want you all to know her name is Susan, not Tammy Faye. <laughs> but the Cuba question is one that we used to get all the time. Why why do we not uh, kiss and make up with Fidel? Uh, we're losing business opportunities down there. The Canadians are going down there and taking these business opportunities. Well, I think principle should count for something. And for 40 years we were engaged in a in a In a struggle for the hearts and minds of everybody in Latin America against Fidel, and we won, and he lost and If anybody ought to change policy, I think it ought to be it ought to be Fidel. Susan disagrees with me on that, but I tell her that that everything in Cuba works really well except breakfast, lunch, and dinner and and that's that's indication of how successful we've been, and we're not losing any real business by not playing footsie with him. And it it isn't hurting the United States not to do so. Now he may justify his retention of power on the basis that we're at, that we're we have an animus toward him, and he probably does. Okay, a
0: few more questions
2: there in the center. Yes. Hi, um, I'm an international student from Hong Kong in the Woodrow Wilson School. And since coming to the United States last year, I've been very concerned about the
1: anti-China bashing that goes on in Congress and also in the media. In a country
2: where the average American seems to know about China only in terms of Tiananmen Square and Tibet and Taiwan, and maybe outsourcing,
0: so I'm just outsourcing.
1: Yeah, we're outsourcing.
2: So I'm just, I'm, I'm just curious about what your opinion is about this anti-China bashing that goes on in domestic politics, which I see as a Significant obstacle to effective U.S. foreign policy.
1: Well, you heard me say in my formal remarks that there is no, in my in my view, there is not. It's not inevitable that China's rise and America's preeminence will will result in a clash, but it could be a self-fulfilling prophecy, and we don't need that. And that I I think I also said the best way to uh, find an enemy is to go looking for one. And the kind of China bashing you're talking about is very, very regrettable and very destructive. That's in effect what I was what I was saying, and I'm going to have an op-ed in the next three or four days that, that that says more about that. I don't know what publication it'll be in if anybody takes it, but
0: <laughs> but anyway, I, the Daily Princetonian. Yeah, I them. I really, <laughs> exactly.
1: I really think that this relationship today. China-U.S. is the most important, probably, bilateral relationship we have. And it is really important for China and really important for the United States that we find a way to manage our differences. There's still there's some areas of community of interest, but we need to find a way to manage our differences. And that's not help when you get political demagoguery such as you've mentioned. I'm going to take that one and
0: then that one.
2: Secretary Baker, thank you for coming, first of all. I'm going to ask you a question about an issue which I know is close to the dean's heart, and that's global governance. Some say that the United States missed a unique opportunity at the end of the Cold War during the Bush administration of reforming global governance institutions. And now with the reform of global governance institutions, most notably the UN, what sort of role do you see for a new type of global governance structure
0: in dealing with the challenges that you outlined, following from globalization?
1: I wouldn't begin to try and answer that with the dean standing here as an expert, and I am not an expert in global governance. Uh, I do think it's healthy that the UN is talking about uh, doing some reforming. But as I told President Tillman on the walk over here, she said, I want to tell you how much um, I admire what you did when you were Secretary of State from the multilateral, uh, from the standpoint of encouraging multilateral action on the part of the United States. I said, thank you very much. Madam President, but I don't see multilateralism as an end in and of itself. I see it as a very useful uh, way for the United States to pursue its national interests. We would have had a lot more trouble in the first Gulf War if we hadn't had that Security Council resolution. But I do not believe that we can put our national interests... uh, we, we, they cannot be subject to a lowest common denominator uh, effect. We cannot say, for instance, we're never going to do anything that we think is in our national interest unless we have a UN Security Council resolution authorizing it. Because then you're going to—I mean—you're going to give Ghana or Cameroon or somebody like that the, the ability to veto action that you might think is in the national interest. So we can't ever get ourselves in that in that spot. I'm sure that's not what the dean meant by global governance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm too smart to contradict you in
2: public. My question triggered by your observation that uh, sanction is not an effective uh, policy. Last time when you speak on campus, in responding to a question about Cuba, you defended passionately I think I'm justified in using that word, U.S. policy of sanctioning Cuba. And um, I'm not going to ask you why in one case we should sanction in another case we should not. We sanction
1: too much. uh, In
2: intervening years, Latin America has turned into a state less to the liking of the administration. I think you mentioned that. So my question is, have you a change of heart towards Cuba? No,
1: no, and it, because the change in Latin America has been just in the last few years, and we've had sanctions on Cuba for a long, long time, they were that didn't that change didn't uh, wasn't affected in any way, in my opinion, by our sanctions on Cuba. A lot, of it, a lot of it was that, that uh, embracing democracy and free markets after a totalitarian authoritarian rule is sometimes difficult. Uh, a lot of it is that uh, we do have somebody in Venezuela who's stirring up a lot of anti-Americanism down there. But I don't think that it, uh, my, my view on Cuba has been consistent for the last 20 or 25 years. And I think our policy there were to isolate Castro when I first came into the government back in 1976, there were many, many countries in Latin America that were sympathetic with Castro, and he was down there stirring up fomenting, uh, fomenting revolution in a lot of those societies. Uh, and we saw all of that transform. That was the only non-democracy when I left office as Secretary of State in 1993. Every other Latin American country was a democracy and a democracy that was trying at least to embrace free market. So I hate to, hate to say it, but I hate to disappoint you because you were so kind to me a minute ago, but the answer is no.
0: <laughs> so, as President Tillman said, uh, we do appreciate you enormously. And to express that appreciation, I'd like to call on Aaron Spoland, who is going to speak on behalf of Wig Clive. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you, Dean Slaughter, and thank you, Secretary Baker, for your wonderful remarks. I'm here on behalf of the American Whig-Cliosophic Literary and Debating Society, and its nearly 500 undergraduate members. And I'd like to present you with the Whig-Cliosophic Society Distinguished Service Award for, as it says, your commitment to public service, inspiration of Princeton students, and outstanding achievement in the nation's government. So as the, uh, as the White House Chief of Staff, the Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of State, and even the founder of the James Baker Institute, uh, you've clearly shown a continued commitment to service and continued involvement in this nation's government. So we'd like to thank you very much and thank you for being here. And you're a role model to Princeton students, and you also show how not only, it's not only the Princeton degree that's so important, but it's a commitment and a passion for helping this nation. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Thank you you very much. I cannot improve on Mr. Spolan. He spoke eloquently, and I think accurately, I'll just say that it is the 75th anniversary of the Woodrow Wilson School. One of the reasons we wanted to have you come and speak to us this year uh, was precisely because you have exemplified Princeton in the nation's service and the service of all nations. We are very grateful. We'd like you to have another memento of the 75th anniversary. Thank you, Dean. <laughs> thank, thank you. And thank you, thank you very, very much, and come thank back.
1: Thank you, Dane. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much.